Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Kreppi and he is Aaron Fentress and we will be uh, recapping aspects of the Oregon Spring game played this past Saturday at Autzen Stadium and what was uh, really a <laughs> just an awesome day by way of uh, the weather, the environment and everything else about it um, after some rather droll and rainy days uh, in the Eugene area and for the better part of the state I would imagine for the better part of the last two weeks. Uh, that was as picturesque <laughs> and scenic, uh, and if you, if you had to dial up and order up uh, a scene, uh, if you're Dan Lanning and the Oregon football operation uh, for a spring game and their first spring game of the Lanning era, that was about as good as it got uh, in terms of the things that you can't control, and then in terms of the things that they could control, there are a lot of good things on the field too, uh, both ways. Now again, we'll go through <laughs> plenty of it, uh, but I thought in the truly 30,000 foot perspective, that it was about as good as one could ask for. I mean, a crowd of, they estimate because they don't charge tickets and, and don't have a way of really tracking such a thing, but they estimated 42,000. And there are plenty of places where you hear these estimates and you kind of just look at it and go, really? That was as real a 40,000 plus as it gets. I agreed. I looked at some photos and I agreed. Yeah. That was absolutely that way. Maybe, First maybe off, 41, uh, four, maybe 41, yeah. 458 or something like that. But uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Aaron wants to count how many, pa- I mean, I, I think he, Judge, <laughs> If Aaron's going to put a hard number on it, he should be counting the pounds of canned goods that were uh, that were donated along the way to try to extrapolate. But it was it was forty thousand plus, no question. I mean, the only areas of Otson that were really barren at all were the areas that normally the visiting fans uh, sit in because of the worst seats in the house. Right. So unless you wanted to volunteer to sit in the worst seat in the house uh, in the basically the uh, southeast and southwest corners uh, that don't exactly have great lines of sight uh, to the field or to the video boards, short of that. That place was packed. Uh, and again, credit to the fan base for it. Uh, and look, there was a lot else going on besides the spring game that day, which is another reason why it became a worthwhile trip for many fans, I would imagine, because you got to take in whether it was uh, track or soccer in the morning or you had baseball and softball uh, afterward and a concert and everything else they had going on. They had a lot happening. Uh, so it was, it was a worthwhile deal. Uh, I mean, look, just by the traffic backup for parking going into it, um, I text somebody before the game and said, you're looking at 35, no problem. Just, just on the parking alone, I can tell you this 35. And that was an hour to right. kickoff. I right. went that, I mean, there's, there's going to be over 35 here. And, it, and there was, there absolutely was. So now from a, like I say, from a truly big picture perspective, uh, as nice and as, uh, well set up a spring Saturday for the Ducks as they could have had. Uh, in terms of the things again that they can't control and the things that they could, I thought it was really just about as good as as good as they could ask for. I mean, I don't, I don't know what more they really could have done to make it better in that way. Yeah, it seemed like the perfect day for Duck fans. And the spring, the spring game to me is always, you know, sort of like your fans can get their fix. Right, the season's been over for four months. You get to get a quick fix of football, see some of the new guys, let your imagination run wild with who can be what coming in the fall. I thought it was really cool, and I, I didn't go to the game; I watched it. But I thought it was cool seeing all the photos and tweets of former players showing up. And the fact that Oregon kind of put out that who was coming, who was confirmed, I thought that was cool. And just, just seeing the photos of Kenyon Barner, Dad, Dixon, uh, LaMichael was there, um, just all these guys that – it trips me out sometimes because you cover these guys when they're 18, 19, 20, and then when you see them when they're in the NFL, and then you see them when they're full-fledged, grown adults in their 30s, <laughs> families and stuff. Uh, so that was kind of cool, just seeing the pictures of all those guys hanging out. Um, and I, I always believe that adds to the atmosphere when you have – all these alumni from the program come back and they're mingling with fans and talking to people. So it seemed like a very uh, positive, awesome day for the program and for Dan Lanning. I mean, you know, he got off to a great start with a great um, 
vibe. I mean, the whole thing has a great vibe to it right now. He has completely, as far as I'm concerned, you know, anyone concerned, really, he's, I mean, I think he did this probably in December, erased the stain of Mario leaving. I think everyone's moved way beyond that. And this was just another example of how this program rebounded from that, which I think we all believe they would, and is moving forward with a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah. And look, and I don't think, for one, that there was, I think that that was basically a one week, maybe even a little Morning bit longer, period, couple, yeah. like two week <laughs> kind of thing, which is going to, it's just natural. But ultimately, look, if Mario was still here, I think this still would be a, a, a pretty high level of enthusiasm in general. Oh, of course. Of course. There's a team that is supposed to be competing for and contending for and has the talent to compete for Pac-12 championships right now and has a lot of talent and, and, added more uh, in the offseason. So definitely a lot of enthusiasm in general that this staff uh, has certainly generated for sure. You mentioned the alums, and they had done that before, and they'll obviously continue to do that, and that was great. Yeah, that, that's another part of it where, you know, you shouldn't take it for granted. You know, we mention it like, yeah, it's part of spring, it's part of spring. Yeah, well, you know what? Not everybody does it. If it's so easy, if it's so obvious, if it's so like, oh, well, everybody does it. No, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> you know, you, you don't see a a a, a – a, convoy of 25 of the more prominent UCLA players or Stanford players or Cal players or Arizona players, you know, yeah, you see one, two, five, whatever, but you don't see just the sheer volume of players from the last 25, the players who were there, if you suited them up, they win the spring game. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, that too. Yeah. I mean, that, that that would really, I mean, they had a squad. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, Dennis Dennis Dixon was there. You got your quarterback. Was Marcus Vince? No, Marcus was, uh, Marcus wasn't there. Two, I guess he's in the You got, you got yes. Dennis, you got a two and a receiver, you got Barner, Lamar. I mean, you're stacked. They, they had it. Hello. They had, they had a <laughs> lot of players that they now Mark and Marcus had been there three years ago for one, you know, so yeah. again, there's been and will continue to be a really a, a rallying cry, uh, of the spring game and making that day a big day. And it should be, it should be to your point. It is an off season rallying point day. Uh, and a showcase for not only the football program, but for some of the other sports. And it was. It, it is that. It was that. And it should continue to be that. But And again, credit to not just the operation, but credit to the fans for making it that way. Because, you know, it's not as simple as if you build it, they'll come. Uh, that's not, you know, it's not that way uh, in, in this era of college sport anymore. You know, when attendance is the way it is. But when you consider that, again, 40,000 plus people. I realize they're in charge. I, I get it. But. 40,000 plus people and the amount of people who had to travel down from, from Portland in particular. Yeah, that's the thing. To come down for, for a practice that was going to last a couple of hours. <laughs> and you know, that is what it is. It's, it's practice yeah. for a couple of hours. And then, all right, maybe if they took in one of the other games and added dinner and all that. Right. But you're, you're making that part of a spring Saturday. You have no obligation for that at all. No. And you make it part of a, you, you put on a show. Uh, you make it a entertaining day and weekend for people and. For people to feel the need and the desire to do that, yeah, you shouldn't be taking that for granted at all these days. Because even when the games count, people aren't showing up in college sports these days. So to do it on a spring Saturday, I mean, look at, like I say, UCLA doesn't have a spring game. You can't even call that a spring game. They do have something that they slap on on television, but nobody's there. Was it really 1,500? I'd be amazed if it was that many. I, I think I saw it was 1,500 for UCLA. That's crazy. It's, it's usually, I mean, usually there's basically nobody there. So, and again, they're not alone in that regard. Right. So, you know, credit again, credit to the, the Oregon operation, credit to the Oregon fans, because having a top 10 uh, by way of attendance at a spring game, you know, you don't get any gold stars. You don't get any wins and losses for that sort of thing. But it means something. 
It's a big recruiting day in the spring. And you're trying to impress upon a lot of your recruits that your fan base cares. And especially for recruits outside the region who can't just swing on by any which time or haven't been here before. And, you know, they watch it on TV for the times that they can see it, but they really don't know what it's like to have 40,000 plus people in a 54,000 seat stadium is tremendous. Do you know, I forget what the number was. I know I heard it at some point over the years, but what's the percentage of fans who come up from Portland? I remember some guesstimates that have been given out in the past, but there have been, and, and obviously they know based on their season ticket yeah. allotment and stuff. And now, right. especially with the tickets being more digital and they have to be delivered that way, they have to know where people are. But right. I was going to look into that more, ironically enough, um, <laughs> ahead of the 20 season. And then, so I don't, I can't speak to but it it's, now it's, because it's, it's more than, oh, it's significant. Than it's significant. Yeah. It, it's more yeah. than half, isn't it? Yeah. So I believe it is. Yeah. To your point, I mean, you have a lot of people committing to driving four hours round trip. And actually, if you if you go if you don't stay, if you go right home after the game, it's going to be two and a half hours just to get home. Um, that's a huge commitment. And, and the fact that you can just watch it on TV and just chill at home, but people are committing themselves to go down there and watch this mm-hmm. speaks to the the um, zeal of the fan base. Now, you know, they're not drawing a hundred thousand, they're not drawing ninety thousand to games, but the the fan base that does attend events is is rabid, and it's always been. It's always been endearing and fun for me to watch that grow over the years, even though some have become a little obnoxious. But the bottom line is that the true heart of the fan base has always been really strong. Well, yeah. not always. I mean, the last 20 years. Yeah. So, again, the credit to them. Made for a good day. Now to the on-the-field uh, product that was. Uh, and we'll start with, uh, as you might imagine, <laughs> the quarterbacks, because why, uh, why bury it any further? Um, your thoughts on the quarterback display for uh, Bo Nix, Ty Thompson, Jay Butterfield that we saw on Saturday? Well, so my first two years covering spring games, covering spring in general, oh, 05, 06, and I was all, you know, into it and giddy about it and like, oh, this is great. Let's see. Because I like, I like to project. I like to think about the future. That's, that's sort of my thing. And so those things were always fun, especially like, you know, Dennis Dixon's first spring and all that kind of stuff, or actually the second spring. Um, but after that, it was like, it became to the point where it was like, yeah, spring's kind of, Kind of corny in a way, in a lot of ways, in terms of predicting the future or planning for for the fall. And the spring game itself is really, really difficult, especially with quarterback because you, they can't be touched. And then you wonder, you know, the, the secondary, are, you know, are they really going to uh, give resistance? There's no there's no real threat of a pass rush. Like it's just it's hard to really come out of it knowing exactly what you're seeing. Like even Marcus Mariota's spring, when because literally that was the first time we ever saw him. Because practices were closed that previous fall when he was redshirt. We all kept hearing about this mystery Marcus Moriarty. He went out there and he looked the part. There was no doubt about that. Um, but there was other players in the, in the past who in spring they looked fine, but in fall they disappeared, whether it was a receiver or quarterback. So for me, it was just difficult to know what exactly to make of what we saw. Now, Nick's threw three touchdowns, only 55%. But two of his biggest plays, like the touchdown to, uh, to Dante was like, to me, that's more about what was the corner doing on that play. Like, I can't even say, wow, that was a great explosive play by Oregon. Oh, my God, their offense is going to be – I'm like, no, what's that corner doing? He let the guy run right by him. Same thing with the pass to McGee. He's just uncovered. Um, so it was just difficult for me to get an idea of this if I saw what's going to be a, a very good offense or if I saw a bunch of guys on offense make plays against a defense that was 79th last year because that's the other side of this thing. Am I seeing bad defense or am I seeing good offense? I saw people praising the offense, but that's kind of scary because they're trying to fix what was a mediocre defense last year. So, you know, 
I, I saw pretty much what I felt coming into us that Nick's is going to be the starter. He's the better veteran quarterback who we know can do certain things. And that Ty, as I stated thousand times last year, basically everyone I talked to was not ready to beat out Brown or move ahead of Brown. I think he showed in the spring that he's still probably not ready. Now it's just one spring game. We haven't seen all the other practices. We have, you know, so it's, it's, it's tough to judge on one day, but he looked like a guy who's still green. So I came out of it thinking Nick's is going to be the starter. Clearly, Ty is still a project. Disagree? <laughs> uh, not entirely, no. Um, I, I, I'm not ready to declare the quarterback competition one way or the other right now. I'm not. That's because you're more measured than I am. <laughs> yeah, because I, because I, because it is a spring game, and because right. you know it's it's it, it's not totally game like, and because the tagging off on sacks and and not allowing for that aspect of the game. Um, for for any of the quarterbacks, you know, I mean, that helps Nicks and, and Thompson really wouldn't have meant a whole hell of a lot for, for Butterfield um, in that way, uh, because he, he admits he's not exactly the most fleet of foot. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's part of it. The other part is, you know, the way that the rosters are chopped up um, in right. terms of, you know, how, how the how the lines are set and, you know, how the rosters were divided up for, for the spring game purposes. So. Hard to make a lot of extrapolations. Admittedly, I have not had a chance to rewatch the game yet. Uh, there's been a few other matters uh, dividing my attention here. Uh, so I will be getting to it. I will, but uh, probably tonight. Uh, but I just haven't had a chance to rewatch it just yet. However, to your general point, yeah, some of the explosive plays, were they great plays or were they, um, you know, either busted coverages or just a play that probably could have gotten 10 or 15 yards but ended up breaking free for more because of one issue or another? And I'm not really going to sit here and debate the <laughs> relative uh, uh, value of spring game performance uh, or any one play, certainly. Overall, uh, obviously, Nick's outperformed his counterparts in the game itself. What does that mean insofar as the competition? Like I say, I don't fly off the handle on it yet because, and I'm not suggesting you are, but I, yeah. I don't because it's one, you know, we weren't there for all other. 13 practices or today's for that matter. Um, and there's still time. I don't, I, I do think that the gap between Knicks and Ty now from what we have seen is wider than the gap between Thompson and Butterfield. I think they're closer to each other now, as of now, than Thompson is to Knicks as of now, but I don't think that either of those gaps is insurmountable or is so far and away that the degree of separation is so vast that Knicks cannot possibly lose the job if he has it, if you assume he has it in the first place, or that Thompson is absolutely not just not the starter is, is absolutely locked into being the number two. Right. Um, so with that said, I think truly, um, that all three quarterbacks can enter the offseason feeling like they're in a, a relatively competitive spot. Do I think that Butterfield has the far and away the toughest road to hoe in terms of actually trying to get the starting job? Yes, yes, I do. Um, I felt that way. Obviously, we know last season he was the number three anyway. Um, that was last year. Now, having said that, I think he actually has the strongest arm of the three. Right. So that's why I say like all three can legitimately enter the offseason feeling like they have something to really uh, legitimately compete for. Because from what we've seen, not just on Saturday, but from what we saw during the course of spring when we were out there, by the way, of what the rep distribution was um, and and 
their physical traits and abilities that we've seen before as well. So I do think if I had to set a pecking order that is Knicks, Thompson, and Butterfield, but I don't think any of it is Chisel and Stone at all. At all. And look, and, and, and if, if it were, if we had seen on Saturday that like, wow, Bo is just whipping it all over the place and, and Ty just looks completely and utterly lost or something. Well, then, you know, I'd be the first to come on here and just acknowledge reality. I don't think that this is done yet at all. Uh, and I think it won't, it won't be lip service for the next three plus months if Dan Lanning and Kenny Dillingham and anybody else in the operation says, Hey, we haven't decided on anything. There's still a quarterback competition. I don't think they're giving you lip service. I think this is real. I think there's a competition where one party is ahead of the other, but it's undecided. Here, Okay, so here's my take on this. They went out and got Knicks for a reason. I think Mario would have gone on and gotten somebody as well because, one, you'd like to have a veteran quarterback on your roster like they did the previous year. They went out and got Brown, even though Mario swore up and down that Tyler Shuck was the future. Um, still, you get a veteran guy, that's fine. But they got a guy who's been there, done that. But he kind of is what he is. Now, he could blossom and just become amazing, I guess. It's possible. But you look at his career numbers, and he's pretty, pretty much been the same dude his entire career. And so, But at least you know with him you have a veteran guy who could operate things. He may not be spectacular. He can be spectacular at times. He's not going to carry you to a Pac-12 title, title and be Offensive Player of the Year, more than likely. But he's going to be able to be as good or better than Brown at least. So Ty has to demonstrate that he can master the mechanics of being a quarterback, not just dropping back, but just all the functions of checking this and checking that and reading this and reading that and then delivering throws on time against pressure, et cetera, et cetera. He has the physical attributes to be amazing, but is it ever going to click in his mind? So for me, the fact that they brought in Knicks is a challenge to Thompson that you have to mature and grow if you're going to be a starter for us. And then it comes out of spring, and again, based on just the spring game that we saw, and I know you saw some practices, um, Knicks is – Clearly ahead of them. Now, I don't remember, I remember a lot of times when guys had, quarterbacks had good spring games, but never materialized into players in the fall. I don't recall a time at Oregon when a future star quarterback had a bad spring game. I don't, and I, maybe I'm forgetting one, but like, I don't remember Dixon having a bad spring or Clemens or Marcus or Herbert. Um, even it's kind of a hard thing to do. Right. If you, yeah, if you're a baller, Spring is like that. That's like they can't touch you, and you're a baller, and you know the offense, and this everything's kind of vanilla. The defense is kind of vanilla. I mean, they're doing some things, but it's not like a game. So for me, if I see a young quarterback struggling in the spring, it's difficult for me to wrap my mind around the fact that in three months he's going to be ready to start over a guy like Nitz. So I, if I was in Vegas right now, I'm plopping money on Bo Nix all day long. Now, but the thing about the thing that's fun about young quarterbacks is that you never know when it's just gonna. And that was the thing with Dixon. Dixon was a late bloomer. And then one day, one summer, summer of 07, it just all came together. And a part of that was Chip. Chip did a great job of simplifying things for Dennis and just letting him just be an athlete instead of overcomplicating stuff for him. And then it just, boom. He went from, I got benched for Brady Leaf to a Heisman front runner. <laughs> so if you're a Duck fan, you're hoping that someday Thompson's going to have that happen to him. I just don't believe it's going to happen this summer because he doesn't have a body of work behind him that Dixon had. Dixon had a full season of starting some games and playing, getting that well, experience. For one, you don't, you don't get it until you get it. You don't get, you right, know, you can't, right, but you can't I'm saying, knock I'm saying until he, it's, getting, it's there. No, but so. I'm saying, but he doesn't have that to, but I'm saying he doesn't have that to draw upon that Dennis did. No. Dennis had no. a chance to go through them, some failures and in game and successes. So he had successes to build upon and then things click. Ty doesn't have that yet. So what I'm saying is, my money is on Knicks is going to start this fall. 
But I'm hoping Ty Thompson, A, doesn't transfer. I'm hoping he doesn't become disillusioned. And I hope he just keeps working because it could very well click for him in year three, which only be his redshirt sophomore year. So that's sort of where I'm at with this whole thing right now. That's that's the biggest part of this that, uh, and again, like, I think that the last decade of college football, that the Manziel effect has been unbelievably detrimental to the Oh, ridiculous. To the it's discourse. ridiculous what it's done. Yeah. Because... It has taken a generation of younger college football fans and players even now and made them think that now that the the threshold, the ceiling has been broken, this limitation has been you know lifted, that now everybody needs to do it. And if they don't, right. that they're a bust, they're terrible, they're no good, and out the door you should go. Right. And and that's a reflection on them. Record the coordinator and whoever else recruited them, and and you know, yeah, they can't them. develop quarterbacks. Why is he ready and, at nineteen? And, <laughs> and if you don't come in as a freshman and start immediately and play like uh, Tua, who by you know obviously came at the end of his freshman season, uh, or Trevor Lawrence, or you name it, that they're terrible, and that is such a ridiculous disservice to quarterbacks who are already on rosters. And the notion of experience is if that doesn't matter, you know, it's like, guys, you know, there is a reason why this, the sample size is so vast for quarterbacks and experience as it relates to NFL prospects and, and, and the translatability and relative success at the NFL level. And if it, go back and look at it, you know, we're in NFL draft week, I guarantee it'll get brought up during the course of draft coverage this weekend, the correlation between quarterbacks who play four years and are multi-year starters, at least two, and then it, and then it goes up even higher if you're a three-plus-year starter in college football and how that correlates to success in the NFL among first-round draft picks is, I mean, there's, there's no way to counter it. It's extreme. That's why that was one of the points, one of the data points that Peyton Manning expressed to Justin Herbert and why you should return. Well, not just about personal experience and, yeah, I did this back in you know the 90s at Tennessee. No, look at what the data tells you. The data tells you that if you come back and play as a senior season and what that season does for you and that development, is is like I say, it's irrefutable. So the idea that now that a 18 year old comes in and they're a four star, five star, elite 11, or whatever other tag you want to slap on them, and that they have to do it immediately, and that if they don't do it as a true freshman or as a redshirt freshman, that they are now up and now in the one time transfer and transfer portal era, they got to go. They can't. Who can possibly <laughs> sit and wait for more than five minutes? Otherwise, it's over. <laughs> It's so ridiculous because more than five minutes. That's just, it's just like when yours last year basically was five minutes. He had a cup of coffee at Ohio State. He managed to make some money and God bless him. But like, what are we doing here? This is so ridiculous. So the idea that like, if that ends up being the case, that is not indicative of what Ty Thompson or any other quarterback in a similar situation may be capable of at all. At all. Guess what? These players are coming in from high school. They haven't filled out their frames yet. 
they haven't totally fit, let alone mentally in their game and football IQ and understanding of an offense. Put that aside. They haven't physically fully developed yet, nor should they at 18 or 19 or 20. They're still growing young people. Well, guess what? At the NFL level, if you are 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", you better be north of 230 pounds at that height at quarterback because you have really big grown men who are trying to crush you on a constant basis. That's why mobile quarterbacks in the NFL don't take the kind of hits that college quarterbacks take because the players are bigger, stronger, and faster. Everyone is. So, yeah, part of the game is developing physically along with mentally, along with learning the offense, along with having the game IQ, and taking the lumps along the way if you do play early. That's all part of it. So if it's Bo for now, okay, and we'll see how it plays out. And you hope and wish him the best, however long it is. And if it's Ty for now, okay, you wish him the best and you see how he goes as a second-year player. But if he has to wait till year three to be the every weekend starter, this is not a cause celebra. This is not, you know, alarm bells going off and, like, what's gone wrong? The idea that, like, a redshirt sophomore, is that, that that's the start of someone's starting days in college football? Like I say, prior to Johnny Manziel showing up, uh, that was kind of used to be called, I don't know, normal. <laughs> that was how it, it was for everyone. Like there was basically extraordinarily rare exception to that. Only in the last decade has it now gone so far to the other extreme that it's really done a tremendous, like I say, I think it's done a disservice to the entire conversation of how we look at quarterbacks in college football. Everywhere, not just here, everywhere, everywhere in the entire sport. And part of it is the advent of the spread and no huddle because that has allowed it's made it easier. That's one, that's why the numbers offense. are so crazy. Because it's a simple <laughs> offense. Well, it's simple. And if you have a mobile quarterback, he can run around and create things. Like that was my thing with Manziel. I never believed Manziel was going to be a good NFL quarterback because I never watched him do NFL things. Drop back three steps and he's gone. I'd see him drop back and just run around like crazy and make a spectacular play. It's like, you can't get away with that shit in the NFL. You can get your head knocked off. He, and he was never that fast. He was quick, but he wasn't that fast. Linebackers are going to run him down and smack him around. And exactly that's what happened in the NFL. And so you're seeing these guys come in as freshmen. If you spread things out and you give them athletes and you give them quick reads, and if they have any type of intellect, they're going to get guys the ball and they're going to rack up numbers. But does that translate to you being great or just your offense being conducive to racking up numbers? And if you look at a lot of the quarterbacks who blew up early and maybe contended for Heisman's, how many of them are successful in the pros? I mean, where's Manziel? Where's uh, RG3? He got hurt, though. But where's Marcus has been struggling? Um, uh, Tebow? This is a long list of guys who put up crazy numbers, but in the NFL, it's a different animal. And so it's easier to put up crazy numbers early now because of how offenses are, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to develop into a pro. And I think the, the the idea of just actually developing as a quarterback goes by the wayside sometimes because you're supposed to just instantly be able to be magical right away. And I just don't believe that everyone develops the same rate um, as everyone else. And so I give Ty, like, I think Ty still had a chance to be great. He's got to figure it out. It'll help him too, hopefully being in the same offense more than and just Again, we keep year. focusing on Bo and but, Ty. Guess what? I think Butterfield has a chance but, to be yeah, a so fine I, well, college gonna, quarterback. See, I, I don't, I don't know. I, so, I'm not going to profess to know if it's going to be here at Oregon or otherwise, and I'm not suggesting he goes because I don't do that. Okay? But I'm saying that if ultimately, whether it be here, there, or anywhere else, and I have no idea. I'm not trying to give credence to the idea that it's anywhere else. But I think his talent, I'm talking about his arm talent, that's what, the ability that's to what drive the ball say. down the field. Right. Is absolutely at a power five level without question. Without question. So 
what take that for whatever it's worth, wherever it may go. I have no idea, but I'm saying that I think all three of these quarterbacks absolutely have the talent, skill, and ability to be successful in college football at major college football, which is a good thing, which is what you want in your quarterback room. Right. I'm sure, I'm sure you probably heard the same stuff. This is what I was told last year is that Ty was basically ahead of Jay, mainly because Ty gave you more of the dual threat abilities, but that Jay was ahead of him as a passer. And so from an NFL standpoint, moving forward, if Jay can get somewhere where he can play, if it's not here and demonstrate the arm talent in a system that's going to be okay with him not being able to run around a lot and just stick in the pocket and stick darts, then he's going to attract as a better pro prospect because that's say, what he's the most prototypical for. of the three. Exactly. Because they're the NFL team is going to say, oh, well, yeah, he's not very mobile, but Jesus, he can make the reads and stick the throws in there. He could be a better NFL prospect down the road. And, and like we're talking about filling out frame. Look, Jay's a guy who's got to add and fill out his frame. If he's going to be an everyday guy, he has to fill out his frame. Yeah. Has to. Has to. And we didn't get updated heights and weights and measurements this spring. I don't know why. I don't know. And, and whatever. It's not in my control. I don't know. It's a state secret. I don't know. They, 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 don't, they apparently no longer get on scales every day. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> bottom line is Jay's got to fill out his frame. He's, he's got to become, he's got to be a 230 plus pound quarterback at his size. Because, and if he does that clean weight, obviously, if you do that and fill out and get that much more muscular and filled out, then you are able to withstand, especially as a pocket passer, you will be able to withstand the hits that come with being that in a, in a mobile, in a uh, stationary, you know, kind of position. So all part of it, but the quarterback uh, play on the weekend as a whole on the Saturday. Yes, obviously I would say, yes, Nick's is ahead of the other two. Um, I, again, I haven't had a chance to rewatch, but going by live, I think all of their interceptions certainly were uh, miscues that could be very much situations that each of the quarterbacks would want them back. I thought Ty's interceptions of the four, uh, you know, obviously he had two of them. I thought his were really not good. Um, uh, even at first blush, I thought they were just not good throws um, or not good decisions, one or the other. So um, having said that, you know, those are not the only things that happen, though. So, again, something that we'll be discussing, I'm sure, many, many times throughout the course of the offseason. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. Elsewhere on the offensive skill positions, uh, certainly the guys who really had big days, starting with Seven McGee, Dante Thornton, Chase Coda, uh, Troy Franklin, really big days, and, and, and Noah Whittington, too, for that matter, on the ground. So, to me, the biggest question of this offense this offseason was not at quarterback. I've said that before. Obviously not on the offensive line when everybody's back. Uh, it really isn't even about scheme. And I know it is for some people, but not for me, only because I've covered this scheme before from the originator of it. So I don't need to really face that many questions in my own mind because I already know. I've read, I've literally read the book on it. So um, doesn't really <laughs> – I don't have those questions. Um, my questions were about all the skill positions because they are replacing – the guys who were the bell cows in the backfield for the last four years, they were replacing uh, a wide receiving core with John Johnson, the third and Jalen red and Pittman transferring and you name it. They were replacing a lot of firepower and Devin Williams. Yeah. yeah. And so they were replacing a lot of guys yeah. at the skill positions. And that was where there was the greatest amount of uncertainty for me. Not in that. Oh, well, you, you don't know that Byron's there? Of course you know that Byron Carbo's there or that Sean Dollars is back or that Seven was coming back and going to receiver and that, you know, that Franklin and Thornton in particular at the receiver spot 
were going to be in that position, and, and Hudson, for that matter, is the leading returning guy. You knew the names. The question was, what are those names capable of as every day, every weekend starters in the roles that they are now in? What will they be capable of in this offense, regardless of who the starting quarterback is? What will they be capable of as everyday players when the when the snap per game number average is mm-hmm. going to go up rather significantly right. for five, six, seven different players? We're talking. That's a, a lot to try. Right, but I'm I'm saying even separate the quarterback part. No, I'm just saying, but for the receivers, though, that matters. If you're going it, to oh, it a, does, absolutely. You know. But but I'm just looking at it in, yeah. in the vacuum of what will Thornton, Franklin, Hudson, McGee, Cardwell, Winnington, what will these guys be doing when their snap count and as a ratio of that snap count in the total game goes up enormously in the case, particularly of the young receivers, uh, and for Cardwell as a, you know making him potentially an every down back kind of guy. What does it do? And that, to me, is the greatest questions facing this offense this offseason is because you're not just talking about one guy. You're not just talking about two guys. You're not just talking about three guys. And again, I'm putting aside the quarterback conversation. <laughs> That's where I think is the greatest uncertainty. I think you began to get an indicator. Again, I say an indicator because I haven't gone back and rewatched. I haven't seen every single matchup on the one-on-ones and who was defending any one of these receivers on any given play every time. But obviously you knew that Thornton and Franklin were going to have big roles. I think you saw that, certainly. Uh, I think the fact that Seven McGee got free as much as he did was quite a nice show. Uh, it was. I thought that Chase Cotto getting involved to the extent that he did was a nice showing on Saturday, certainly. So a lot to be optimistic about. If you're a Ducks fan regarding the skill positions, they gave you a lot. And on a day where Cardwell was held out for precautionary reasons, you know, I admittedly had not put a whole lot of time in a rewatching, you know, Western Kentucky tape last year for No Whittington. So I didn't, I knew, yes, the numbers and overall what his skill set was, but I had not spent an enormous amount of time going through game tape for WKU, I must admit. And seeing not just his shiftiness or his uh, agility, which it was kind of a given, given his, his stature. What impressed me about him was his, for, and I don't even know if this is literally a word, but his ability, his bounce ability, his ability to, if he got hit to bounce a play to the outside to stay upright, his ability to keep a play alive and keep himself up and either move laterally off contact or just as I say, stay upright uh, and, and keep a play going. That kind of stuff matters. That just matters. I don't care if this is practice, a spring game, Georgia, Eastern Washington, or anybody else. That just translates and matters. And that was huge to see because you know he's a more nimble kind of a, a shifty back. But until you see it against bigger guys, uh, and let's face it, the Oregon defense is probably, no matter what the rosters were on Saturday, probably the biggest collection of players from a physical stature standpoint that he's played against on a regular basis because he was only at WKU for a short time and they're in the league that they're in. So 
bottom line, I, I thought he was really impressive. I was impressed by a lot of the skilled guys, but I was really impressed by him. Like I say, mainly the ability to, to bounce off a of contact. That's, that just translates. Like I say, you can't teach that. <laughs> you, either have, you either have that ability or you don't. That's what separates the good backs from the, or the great backs from the good backs. I mean, anyone can yeah. run through a wide ass open hole. Yeah. Right? Anyone can do yeah. that. But are you bouncing off guys and getting yards after contact? Are you making guys miss? You know, that's what separates the difference between, you know, okay, we have a great offensive line. Anyone can rush for 1,200 yards. But do I have a back who behind the same offensive line can rush for 1,800? Because he's getting 600 special yards on top of it. Mm-hmm. And so if he's going to be your backup, because I think most people agree Cardwell is probably going to be the guy in his pretty mm-hmm. has special ability. Like, I I fell in love with him last year just watching just just as much as he ran. Uh, I, I, running back to me is, like, not even an issue, especially with the offensive line returning most of mostly everybody. Um, I, I feel like the run game is going to be money. Like, I, I really feel confident about that. And you didn't even really get to see much of the running game on Saturday because Carbo was held out. You right. saw, you know, you saw what he did, you saw and, dollars. Yeah. But, you know, and then obviously several of the walk-ons. But ultimately, they weren't going in there with a point of making it so vanilla that they were just pounding the rock and, and running into right. a pile of humanity. Um, right. You know, they, they were throwing it a whole lot. <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that worked. So, oh, look, I think you'll, mm. I think the run game will be successful regardless um, but the fact that they are legitimately uh, three deep, and of course they're bringing in Jordan James as well, is you know he's just not here yet. But they're they're going to have the depth of talent at running back. Now, of course, you know running back core is always you know a knock on wood situation. You know your rolled ankle and a and a twist here from going from three deep to one in a hurry. Um, that's always that way. But truly, I, I think the run game is is going to be productive and successful. But now you have a better idea and read of skill sets and, and overall talents and abilities for sure. Yep. Uh, and like I say, I don't want to glaze over the receivers um, because since since people were so um, steadfast and insistent that the uh, freshman last year could have, would have, should have been involved that much more you know, on a week-to-week basis uh, and obviously closed the season really strong. So you had that optimism of, okay, you know, this is what they're going to actually be capable of and et cetera. And again, guys who came in as heralded recruits, you knew that the talent and ability was there, but would they fill out and would they be able to translate it when their time came? And now it will be their time. And I think you saw that from Thornton and Franklin in particular, that their skill sets are real, very real. And when you bring them along with Hudson coming back and adding Coda in particular, that get that begins to give you a core of firepower. Yes, a core of firepower. At the receiver position. Is that everybody? No, it's not. It's not. Uh, I think if they're going to add anybody via the transfer portal here, particularly after May 1st, once, you know, this week it's going to start to get pretty wild and the number of players, you know, today it's already quite the bonanza and it's going to continue and it's going to continue up to May 1st for everybody to get in by May 1 to be able to play in the fall. If they are going to look to add at any one position on the offense, I would say it's still at receiver. Absolutely. Both in terms of number and I still think in terms of quality depth, if not depth, I think outright, you know, overall talent. Defensively, I think there's maybe one or two spots as well. But if they're going to add on offense, it's going to be at receiver. But you have the the core group, clearly, that they're going to be leaning on at the receiver spot. And a lot to feel pretty good about there, if you're a Ducks fan. Given that this is an area where there's question marks, I think after Saturday, you're feeling pretty good. Now, again, you got to go out and prove it. You know, yeah. having having stars next to your name from a year ago or putting up stats in a spring game is nice. But you got to go or, out. Or, pre- in a, or in the second half of a blowout bowl game. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Now, again, you know, yeah, in Oklahoma's are right. 
but they were without a whole bunch of players and it was a blowout and you know they had to play that way because of the score and all those things absolutely so point is is hey week september 3rd is a real opponent as we all know and when those right and when those dbs get legitimate dbs we're going to be in the nfl getting your face and start jamming you rerouting you how are you getting off those reroutes in a building in a building that's going to be probably 80 20 against you Right, um, exactly. And are you yeah. consistently getting open so that Nick's, who's under pressure, has got to get rid of the ball? Are you there or not? Are you open? Do you have separation? I mean, all those things are going to be determined in the fall. The thing, I've mentioned this before, and I just still think it was, and I mentioned it because it was just an amazing thing to watch. As, like, I'm looking at the receivers from last year. They've got, you know, three dudes who combined for like 700 yards in, in Thornton, mm-hmm. uh, Franklin, and Hudson. And so, but in 2014, that year, like the, the leading receiver, re, re, returning receiver was Keenan Lowe at 200 yards and no one else, like Devin Allen was a redshirt freshman, Carrington was a redshirt freshman, Byron Marshall moved from running back to receiver. So he had never been played a receiver before and they helped Marcus win the Heisman. Now Marcus was Marcus though, and they don't have Marcus, but my, my point is that they had a great quarterback who could make it work with a very green receiving core. If the receivers struggle at all in terms of being greedy in high pressure situations, that's just going to put even more of an onus on Knicks to be special. And that's where you could have problems. And that's where drives get stalled. And that's the stuff we saw with Brown last year with drives in because there's a hiccup. There's, there's a problem in, in, in synergy between the quarterback and receiver where the quarterback just isn't, he's a 58% guy and not a 68% guy. And so that's where things can fall apart and you start losing a couple games here and there. And I've made the point, and, and I don't want to go too far on a tangent here as we go over stuff in the spring game, but I, I was having this conversation with somebody la- uh, last week or the week before. I actually think of any position group. I was actually talking with a coach about this yesterday, ironically enough, and he, and he agreed. The position group, at least on offense, outside of the lines of scrimmage, and I would argue it may even be ahead of the lines of scrimmage, that are the most that is the most difficult to overhaul in a sustained way, is receiver. Regardless of program, that if that is a thing that you have to overhaul, if that is a position you have to overhaul, that the most difficult is receiver. Because if you get a quarterback, and you're not a school historically who produces a whole bunch of quarterbacks, but if you get a quarterback, that guy can be really good for two, three years, and then that can help you in a hurry. If you can get a running back, who's just the dude and is a thousand yard rusher for a couple of years that can help you in a hurry. You don't need multiple at those spots. The offensive line, whether you know, you can have a, a franchise caliber, you know, such as it is at the college level, kind of a tackle, whether or not that helps you cross the entire board it, it can at least mask a few things for you and help you a little bit. But ultimately other than extreme deficiency cases, you, you kind of have a certain floor, Kind of, sort of, you know, outside of the really, really terrible lines out there. Defensive line, you can get a just bananas pass rusher or run stopper that can certainly help you in a hurry. Linebacker, corner, you name it. But at receiver, getting one guy can help you. They can be really productive. But does that actually help you sustain that position in the long run if you only have one? Well, we saw it with Mitchell. Point Exactly. He had a crazy season. And I remember thinking, well, yeah, he's having a crazy season because Herbert only trusts him and looks at him every damn time. <laughs> and so his stats are padded, but overall the passing game was not that great. Right, because they led the country in drops, otherwise the position right. and other things. So point is, is, in trying to overhaul that position since that season, you now can have a greater appreciation for 
the totality of things in terms of the receiving core uh, that Herbert had to play with. And again, I've long said, and we've addressed it here, that for those who now want to completely rewrite and just tar and feather everything about the offense of the last four years, uh, that if you want to point fingers, if you want to blame anybody, uh, you can call up Nebraska and start with Scott Frost and go back to Lubick. Because the failures to have depth and quality depth and NFL caliber depth at the receiving core over the last four years the last is because 20. of the but especially the last four when Justin <laughs> yeah, Herbert but I'm was just saying, This has been an Oregon problem for a right. long time. But, but, but especially in yeah. the Justin Herbert yeah, time. Yeah, and, and last year where it, they, they had the best running year of Mario's tenure. And after hearing for three years about how the quarterback didn't run enough for them, that they got the, the top 10 running quarterback in the country. But, you know, we went from it's Goldilocks and three bears. This is too hot. This is too cold. We didn't run enough. <laughs> now he ran too much and he didn't pass enough, you know. So everyone wanted Marcus. Is, they wanted the 4,000 right, yards right, passing and right, the 900 yards right, rushing. Exactly. Right, so exactly. point is, is because he wasn't you know, special. He but was, if you don't, but if you, the point is, is that in order to overhaul the receiving position, it takes more. And you began to get that with VMAC, getting Franklin and Thornton and Brevard in particular. But now it's adding to that, and they're obviously continuing those efforts. But it isn't something that happens instantly. And it's not just an Oregon thing. Like I say, there are plenty of programs out there that are not historically known for cranking out receivers every year. And then they have to go through it. And they have, and, and how have they been able to sustain it or not in that way? Look, if you go back historically, historically, not in the last two years or five years, you know, history is longer than that, believe it or not, in college football. Is it? I know. It's, it's only, it's only what have you done for me lately? I know. In recruiting, it's what have you done for me in the last, you know, 30 seconds. Right. And, and what, what Twitter graphic can you give me? Right. You want to take a look back at no, Alabama's no. receiving core? Historically, are you going free Amari Cooper or right around the beginning of the Cooper era? Mm. But go back and take a look. Go back and take a look at how they went about it. And yes, obviously Billy Napier showed up also and helped sustain that too. But go back to before Napier. Go take a look at back at you know Tyrone Prothrow and some of those guys. If you want to go back and look at some of you know how did that place become that. Because if you want to go back to the early 2010s and early 2000s, Alabama went cranking out two and three and four NFL receivers every year. So they adapted and they changed, and credit to Nick for that. But point is, is that all these places that are now renowned for their offense weren't always that way. How did they go about doing it? How have they sustained it? Yeah, they won a whole lot, and they got great recruiters and great coaches. That helps, no question. But how did they do it? Who started it? And how do you sustain it? Who, That's yeah. a challenge. That's a challenge. And it's a, it's a very big challenge. But guess what? The Ohio State receiving core, same thing. You go back to really what helped change that. Really, the start of it was Santonio Holmes. Because when they won the national championship in 2002 – with Craig Krenzel and you know Michael Jenkins, that wasn't a passing offense that was lighting up the scoreboard like crazy. They're winning it with trestle ball and running the ball and pounding the rock and playing old school Big Ten football. Then came San Antonio. Then came Brian Hartline, now their receiving coach, 
who's going out there getting three and four five-star receivers every year, then with Brian Rabisky, and then that begat the next, begat the next. But you have to get the ball rolling. If you're an Oregon fan, what does it mean for the Oregon fan? I think you have the start of that ball rolling with this young core. The start. The start of it. <laughs> but here's, what's, here's what's crazy about this, and this is one of the things I said about Mario is that I believe Mario believes he can recruit high-end classes at Oregon, but I think he, he believes he can recruit better players at Miami because not all four-star players are created equal. Oregon has probably recruited 20, 25 four-star receivers in the last 10, 15 years. Like, they recruited a lot of dudes. I remember fans going nuts about, was it Takoy Sumler or something like that? And then there was this other kid. Like, it was like, these guys are going to be unstoppable, amazing. And none of them ever started a game. They were stacking four-star receivers, but they weren't legitimately elite four-star receivers like Bama, Ohio State, other programs were getting. So to me, like those guys were all, those four-star guys were five-star guys. The five-star guys like Julio Jones were six-star guys and Oregon was getting three-star guys. So there was a huge difference. The term that Mario uses for those guys is rocket ships. (laughs) They did not have rocket ships. They did not have guys who could blow the top off. They did not have the four fours on the outside. They didn't. Right. They didn't. Well, you yeah, they like, didn't. John, that is, that Johnson just ran a four six. About, right. Devin ran Johnson, a four Devin. six. Red would probably run a four six. Right. You know, they're nice you, receivers. Wait, Devin Allen difference? showed up though, and Devin Allen busted the four three five. Had well, he not right, better, we right, might have seen right. him develop into a pro receiver. Right. So right. point is, is what's the difference? What is the degree of separation between and the ability to have the kind of explosive offense that Oregon fans want to have on a perennial basis? Not just at the quarterback position or at the running back position, but to do it at the receiver position, which is, like I say, to my belief, the most difficult to overhaul on the entire roster because of how many bodies you have to get in there and do it constantly. Right. And because if they're doing it that well, they are also, like running backs, three-year guys, three and out. Well, then... Trying to do that is very, very, very difficult. And the difference in the degree of separation is, yeah, you can be a quality four-star guy, but you may be a four-six guy. And that's not bad. No. But if you want but to have a, a core, but if you want to have a core of multi-thousand yard guys, you need to have dudes. The former coach would put it, rocket ships. Dudes. And I think you have the start of that. Right. The start. Of that, I'm not putting the cart before the horse because it is the start of that. It is now up to Junior Adams and Kenny Dillingham and Dan Lanning to continue that. Think about and this. We'll see. Yeah, two we'll top six picks at quarterback for Oregon, 15 to 19. Those guys, Marcus played three, Herbert played four. It's seven years. Vernon Adams put up a huge season in his one year. Had he played the entire season, these numbers would have been crazy. That's Eight years of elite quarterback play you had. How many wide receivers are in the NFL from Oregon right now? Mm-hmm. Are there any? Juwan Johnson to me doesn't count. One, he's playing tight end. Two, he came from Penn State. He's a transfer. How many recruited Oregon Ducks are in the NFL right now at wide receiver? Is there any? Am I forgetting? Like Huff got drafted third round, played a few years. Like not, is Mitchell's not still in the league? Is he, he was? He never no, he's played. Trying, did he? He's he trying never to get play? his way back. He's trying to get his way back in. And I actually, I think he was. He may have been in town this weekend. Was he? I actually so thought I saw that. him yesterday. Those three quarterbacks put up those crazy ass passing numbers with yeah. receivers that none of them had true NFL 
Right. Uh, potential. Right again, but you know, again, but that was the, that was the thing that was lacking in context for the better part of all the dialogue of the last four, five, six years regarding offense at the yeah. program, and, right. and every coordinator was the worst coordinator ever. Right, Royal um, was a one fool. Reason, I know. Right, except who's again? I, I but any time you brought up, who's still, he supposed to be throwing the ball to? I know. Nobody I still, ever wanted to hear it. Exactly. I'm, you're like one of the few people that we just agree totally on this. I think I think Helfrich would have gotten more out of Herbert because Helfrich was a better offensive coach, but they were limited. And when people compare what he's doing in NFL to what he was doing in 2019, yeah, it's Keenan Allen, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right, and people yeah. like, oh, yeah, but the DBs, yeah, yeah. Are, but the DBs yeah. are better. Like that's not the point. I'm, I got bigger targets who are more athletic who are getting separation. Yes, against better DBs, but the timing mechanism has to be there because the pass rush is going to be faster. And Herbert, as in 2020, was a thousand times better than Herbert in 2019. He was extremely flawed. He improved himself. That said, we agree 100%. There was only so much they could do with the receivers they had because they didn't have dudes. They had good players, not ballers that teams were like, oh, shit, we got to bracket that guy. Oh, crap, we got to watch out for that guy. They didn't have that. Their best guy was Johnny, who's nice. But Johnny, if Johnny's your third best receiver, you're balling. If he's your mm-hmm. first best number one receiver, you are limited in some ways. And so, yeah, you, I agree with you 100%. They have to have those guys. My favorite receiver the last 20 years by far is Demetrius Williams, who was a fourth round pick. That guy was special. You give me, you give Oregon three or four of those dudes, they're going to be better than they've been in the last 15 years. And even, and even he was limited compared to what you and I are talking about. They need to really become special offensively to really make a run at a national title. We'll shift gears. Man, we agree defense. 100%. Wait, let's yeah. just stop right now. Let's just put this in a capsule. Just- yeah. <laughs> we got there. Uh, We'll get to the defense now. <laughs> a couple of topics here as we recap the spring game. Uh, let's start with, uh, actually with DJ Johnson because just the kind of day that he had. This guy, first of all, he's a former Miami guy, so I love him, but what, I mean, we came as a linebacker, moved to tight end, was kind of killing a little bit, but was limited. Now he's back to where his normal position and he looked pretty amazing. Go ahead. Yeah, he did. He did. And again, he, Quote unquote sacks. So and that's I, I, the way I put yeah, it. Yeah, no, I saw, I saw you, you, get, you, you, have to, you put quotes. Because you have to. You have I know. to. You have to. You, I mean, and, and I'm not knocking him for that. I mean, we, no, I, I know. It's off. What I mean, it is, you know, it is yeah. what it is. Um, you know, you can't, you know. So let's, let's, because it's really, it's less about knocking the, any, any kind of critique about the defense. It's more about, you know, you're, you're, you have to contextualize that the quarterback is non-contact. So they can't run as much to right. avoid the pressure. Um, because they're going to blow the play dead. So anyway, I, uh, Look, he was beyond disruptive. He was an animal out there. And again, I haven't gone through the tape yet, but I do know that even in, in real time, I was recognizing he was not going out there against the number three offensive tackles and doing that. He was going out there at times against the starters and doing mm-hmm. that. So uh, he had a big day, a really big day. And as I wrote after the game, and you don't have to extrapolate, you don't have to start to pontificate and, and, and you know say that he's going to be now the dude and, and get way ahead of yourself. But if he can do even anything close to what he showed on Saturday in a game on a week-to-week basis, this team, who is not just losing a top-10 pick in Kayvon Thibodeau and a transformative kind of player like that, that is coming off, even with him, its fewest sacks since the stat became officially tracked. Isn't that wild? It's insane. Yet arguably the greatest, one of the greatest pass rushers in team history, and you had the lowest number of sacks you've had in, you said, what, 20 years? Yeah. Like, since 2000, since the stat became tracked. Yeah. Yeah. On a per game basis. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> it's absolutely ridiculous. 
And there's plenty of reasons for it, but it, it, it's just right. it, it, inexplicable, quite frankly. Um, that I was actually asked this morning, what, what did I think the pass rush was going to, you know, where did they take a step up, a step back? Will pass rush go, you know, what direction is that going to go? They only have one direction to go up. Even, even with losing KT, you know, they'll, they'll replace it in the aggregate. They have to. If they don't, they're in a world hurt. Um, because it, it, there's only one direction to go. So with a development like Johnson in particular, you know that Braden Swinson's going to bring some stuff. And he was disruptive at times on, on Saturday. Uh, but you needed to have depth at that position. So like I talk about adding potentially if they, if they add, if they add in the portal in the offseason here, that receiver could be on offense. I think the two spots on defense. Everybody in the country is going to want more edge rush. This is a team who needs it. Even with Swinson, even if you think Johnson is going to be a, a monster, you, you, you need another one. <laughs> you need, you need to add to that, um, in a really disruptive way. So that's one. The other spot I could argue, argue, I'm not, I don't put it as high a priority as some fans might, is the deep safety spot. Um, I do think that they could add depth there at minimum, but I think, and we'll get to that in a second, I think they have, they're not as depleted as, as some might believe, but be that as it may. So Johnson was really disruptive. What Lanning said after the game about him, you know, nobody forced that. I, I haven't asked him, you know, what his thoughts were on him and that kind of game and what he's seen this spring. But for Dan to say, you know, we're talking about not putting the cart before the horse and not, you know, fly off the handle. For Dan to say he thinks DJ can be one of the best players in the conference and one of the best in the country at the position, one of the best edge rushers in the country. Ugh, I just can't stand. This is from the guy who just led the number one defense for the last like three years. I know, but what I'm saying, like, like, I was with him. But again, this. But here's the thing: this is this is a coach. But here's the thing: but this is a coach who all spring, anytime we'd ask about certain players, almost any player, quite frankly, other than we would ask, I think like one comment about Dante Thornton and and taking on more of a leadership role and and him being really, you know, quite a bit of praise there in terms of what Dante's been bringing. But short of that, Dan had been all spring, I don't want to say muted, but really measured. And, and you know, everybody's basically one version or another, an iteration or another of guys who are working hard, areas to improve. They'd be the first to tell you they have this to work on. You name it. Right. To say and suggest that I don't care if, who the player's name is. In this case, it's DJ Johnson, but you name doesn't whoever could be the best in the conference or be- one of the best in the country at the position. And then you add that, yes, it is DJ Johnson, who we have seen in flashes, but who over the course of his career has not put forth the kind of statistical evidence to suggest such a thing. That is far and away the biggest comment that Dan has said all spring about a player. So that is incredible in terms of if you uh, forget about read between the lines, there's no lines to read. That was quite the statement from Dan Lanning after the spring game about DJ Johnson, that was humongous. Like I say, compared to everybody we'd asked about all spring long offense or defense, everything else was so much more measured. This guy, this guy brings this veteran presence, Taki Temani. Oh, well, he'd be the first to tell you he could work on that. This one would be the first to tell you they could work on this. This guy's making improvements here. And then this guy, this guy could be one of the best in the conference, if not the country. Right. That just stands out and tells you how much he must have been showing in practices at times this spring because just go by the source of who's been saying it, Dan was so much more measured in so many other players' assessments. That is a lot to put on. Either It's one of two things. Either DJ had been doing it so much in practice that Dan was comfortable enough to say that because it was backed up for what they truly firmly believe. 
and or Dan is further challenging DJ because he sees the potential mm-hmm. and wants to put that on an older experienced player who has time up against him or this is his final season and say, we need you. And you have to deliver like that. Either way, it is an incredibly big statement to put on DJ Johnson, who had a monster spring game. But that is a big thing to put on him. Well, I hear you. I hear you 100% there. I mean, if, if you know, if this is unusual for a coach to, to go this far with a guy, then when they do, you're going to you're going to give it more you know, value. I mean, there's just no doubt about that. And so I, I give you that. It's just for me, it's like, can a guy do something in the game first before we make him? It's like, it's like he's coming off a seven sack season, right? And now he's going to burst on. No, the- but he was also splitting time. He was splitting no, time. No, I know. I'm just saying. He was. I'm just saying. It, it had, I don't know. It, they it had him a in a situational edge rush role he, with some limited tight end capacity. Right. Yeah. So, uh, a little bit much for me, but I'm not going to say he's not, he's, he's wrong. I'm just going to say, eh, I want to see him do something in games, but no, he looked the part. And this, well, I'm looking at him right now. He was seventh, uh, on rivals. He was a seventh rated linebacker coming out of weak side defensive end. Sorry. Coming out of. High school, he had offers from Bama, Baylor, Arizona, Miami. He went to Miami. So, obviously, this was a guy coming out of high school who was perceived to be what he's now becoming. It's a fascinating journey for him. I mean, it's just it's just wild. And I I would venture to say that playing tight end probably really helped him on the other side of the ball because he, he knows more now about what the offense is thinking and what they're trying to do and what they're afraid of and what he can maybe use that information to help manipulate things. But, no, I, I think there's a reason definitely to be excited about the potential he could bring and that – you know, you're trying to re- you're trying to replace Kayvon, and that's a huge ordeal to pull off. And if you think you have a guy who maybe is not going to be Kayvon, but could be so great that he's going to play himself into a second or third round pick, that's huge for your squad. There's no doubt about that. At a position of need, yeah, they need yeah. it. They need it badly. Bad. And <laughs> badly. You know, they, that was frankly on the defensive side. That was you know, I the way the way they you know like every defense causes the havoc plays the havoc you know the cause of disruptive kind of players. That to me was the question for the defense. Again, not about scheme, not about you know one spot or another. It's the overarching theme from front to back. Who are the havoc guys? As we've learned from the spring, who Tosh Lapoy opens up all defensive meetings saying shot callers. Who are the shot callers? Who are the disruptive players? Whether that's edge rush guys, whether that's uh, PBUs and interceptions. Who are those guys when you have to replace two All Americans? And your leader in sacks and the nation's leader in interceptions. Who are those guys? And boy, oh boy, did you see that? Like I say, from from DJ Johnson in particular. I mean, that was just uh, a tremendous start. Uh, he looked apart. Kind of a situation. Spring or no apart. spring, he looked apart. Right. So you have to hope that that obviously translates. Uh, but plenty of other players also in the front seven. Want to stick with that? Um, I didn't write a lot on him just yet, but we'll probably do that a little bit more this week. Jackson Leduc was incredibly active, incredibly active out there. Um, in the front seven, and a guy who, again, you, you began to see him a little bit at the end of last season, coming off back-to-back injuries, you began to see him late in the season, was going to play in the bowl game, then got COVID, so he couldn't play in the bowl game. Now, to come out and play, and he was disruptive and physical, and he had some big hits in that game. So I thought he played well. Um, again, Swenson was disruptive at times. Sam Taimani. I mean, you know that he's a big dude as a nose tackle, obviously. I mean, I've stood next to him. You know he's a large man. But when you see it in a comparative way on the field and, you know, on a down to down basis, my goodness. Um, and obviously, you know, again, that the defensive line was, was missing three of its better defensive tackles all spring. So adding him, what he can offer, 
what you have on the edges there, particularly from DJ and from Swinson. And then, obviously, yes, at the linebacker core, you know you have Noah. All right, Flo didn't play. But LaDuke's in that mix and Boss is in that mix already. And you see them still making the plays they're doing. A lot to feel good about from the front seven uh, in particular. And then, like you say, in the secondary, you just began to see with Christian Gonzalez in particular. Obviously, you, if you watch any of Colorado, you already knew a little bit of what he was bringing. But you saw that. Uh, you saw it with Jaleel Florence. You know, a guy, a young guy coming in as a true freshman here in the spring. And he comes away with an interception in the spring game. And Triquez Bridges comes away with an interception where he, he steals the ball away uh, to do it. And a pick six, no less, uh, in the spring game. Steve Stevens made a couple of really just sound plays tackling from the deep safety spot. And a guy who you know was limited you know, coming off uh, the hamstring injury that he had in the fall. So I thought you saw some, some aspects, obviously, that were quite good. Obviously, there were also those deep plays and long plays we talked about earlier in the offense that they gave up on the defensive side that uh, – Need to be cleaned up, I would say. So it's not not everything perfect by any stretch. But when you have four interceptions, you know, one from a true freshman, one from a linebacker, and then also at the safety spot, like I say, Jared Greenfield, who comes up with an interception and forces a fumble, and a you know, former scholarship guy, not presently on one, but we'll see. I, I, I'm not going to begin to project what they may or may not do with him. Mm-hmm. But that's where I say at the deep safety spot, I think they're, the depth issue that was there at the start of spring may not be as glaring as by the end of it, because of Greenfield being back, because of adding a Donovan Dalton at the scholarship, from a scholarship position at Hawaii, adding him in general. And then, yeah, that they do have some freshmen coming in who will be there in fall camp. And safety is a spot where freshmen can play immediately in rotational capacity. So between Bridges, Stevens, Addison, Greenfield, Dalton, and then you've got uh, Tucker... And Williams coming in at the deep safety spot, I don't think that is as glaring. Now, I'm not telling you they can't possibly add or something. You can always add anywhere um, in college football. But I don't think that that is as glaring uh, a need necessarily as it had been. But I thought as a whole that, yeah, I thought there were there were lots of areas of the defense that, again, gave you cause for optimism. Doesn't mean that they're they going to be better. Are they going to be – they got to be better than last year, though. Are they going to be better? I think they're going to be better – by scheme, strategy, That's and right. play calling sch- alone. Okay. Well, I don't think that certain people were put mm-hmm. in the best position to make the most of their talents and abilities last season. Okay. Regardless of injury, regardless of who was out from the defensive line or the linebacking core, and for how long, I don't think certain people were utilized to the nth degree all throughout the season last season. And I think their inability to deal with 12 personnel. <laughs> God, that was a topic every will podcast. Will persist. <laughs> <laughs> As if we are solving like the world's oh greatest God, labyrinth of that. a problem. So I think there will be certain, yeah, I think there will be certain things that will be rectified merely by the changes of the nameplates in the offices at the HDC. Okay. That alone will do it. Then you add in development changes, etc. You know, other promising things. talent. So, yes. So, do I think they'll be better? Yes. How will they do it in certain areas? I think it'll be in the aggregate. And if they take a dip in volume of interceptions because they're losing Verona and his six, well, then them's the breaks. But if they get it elsewhere because the aggregate numbers of uh, TFLs and sacks goes up, 
they just may not have a seven or eight or nine sack guy. Well, okay. The key is not having a guy. The key is having how many guys do you have over four and five sacks? You can't just have one. <laughs> That's the difference. If you can manage to get it in the aggregate, quite frankly, all the better. Because then it's not about having one dude who's just... Because then everybody will just throw two and three guys at him every week. You need to have three and four and five dudes who can bring it. Who can win the one-on-one and get them. And I don't think pressure. under the prior regime that they put multiple guys in the best position to do that together or individually enough. Gotcha. I don't think they did that last year. I think that the that Lanning, Lupoy, Tuioti, you name it, the all the various coaches in the front seven will do that far differently. And then you add in the simulated pressure element in terms of just the multiplicity of where the pressure is going to be coming from. You know, they didn't blitz a lot of corners last year. They didn't. Very rarely. Very, very rarely. You're going to be some blitz. There's going to be some blitzing corners this year. <laughs> They're going to be blitzing from the corner spot. They blitzed at the safety spot last year on occasion. Particularly with Verone. They're going to be blitzing from every which direction this year. And it's not even going to necessarily be blitzing. It's going to be because they drop somebody off the line, and that's the simulated pressure, where now it's still rushing four or five, but it's from the backside safety or the front side corner or whatever. That's the aspect of it that, again, just going to be different. So I do think they're going to be better for a multitude of reasons, starting with scheme and strategy and play calling, (laughs) and then the talent, yes, in this case. I have no reason to refute that. Any other big picture things uh, as far as the spring game that you wanted to touch on here before we uh, bid folks adieu? I think we covered a lot and very in-depthly and uh, gave it its Oh, well, we could uh, – yeah, yeah, we touched on the running game as well. So, yeah, no, I think <laughs> yeah. we, we pretty much wrapped it up. Yeah. Um, obviously, again, we've got uh, the basically the now, especially by the afternoon here, by the time you folks will be listening to this, the uh, – yes, spring will be totally wrapped up at that point. So for those who uh, want – Further, uh, more on it, not just on my daily coverage in general, but, uh, you know, I'll give them a plug. Why not? You know, you do have the, so it's supposed to be on signing day, but because of one thing or another, <clears throat> they moved the Portland event to this Wednesday. So for those who want to go and attend, uh, you can go and find a way to, how about picking up tickets to do that at Nike headquarters and all that and, and, what have you. And for those who either can't go physically or, or just have the general interest of watching it uh, on the live stream, apparently there will be a live stream of the event uh, in Portland. It's supposed to be the entire coaching staff. And I think there could be some players there as well. Uh, again, that's Wednesday night. And uh, I believe for the in-person part of it, I think it's starting around five 30. There's like hors d'oeuvres and other things. And then the actual proceedings start around seven 30. And that's when the live stream starts. So you can go and check that out. Like I say, that's through Oregon's athletics and their website. And you can, you can find it pretty easily enough. Um, but again, for those who want to watch the live stream of that, as I will be, so I might as well mention it for everybody else. Why not um, to pick up and get a little bit more insight from, uh, from what folks have to say there in terms of post spring. And then the staff, hits the road recruiting, uh, for spring evaluations and they'll be hitting the road immediately. I know like, uh, Kenny Dillingham is going down to, uh, to Arizona next weekend, um, among other places. So, uh, it starts and it starts in a hurry and it's about a five plus week stretch where the coaching staff will be here, there and everywhere, uh, and their spring recruiting cycle and everything else. So again, we'll 
touch base again in the not too distant future to go over, I'm sure at that point, some spring recruiting stuff, uh, heading into the summer, uh, camps, you name it. Uh, the wrapping up the spring sports seasons with baseball and softball well on their way towards the postseasons, everything else. So with that, uh, I'm James Kreppi and he is Aaron Fentress. And uh, a reminder for those of you who don't yet subscribe to the podcast, make sure to do so. Doug's Confidential. Wherever you get your podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, five-star review, etc. It helps us get some additional listeners. More people find us. Thanks to everybody who already does. Thanks for listening to this edition. And we will see you soon.